This is ASHA Voices. I'm JD Gray. Often associated with life-preserving medications and treatment, ototoxic side effects can create hearing loss, tinnitus, and issues with the vestibular system. With the input of audiologists and collaborative care teams, patients can navigate or prevent these effects. On this episode of the podcast, we examine the role of the audiologist in treating patients facing the potential for ototoxic effects. And we hear what an international consortium is learning about how to treat these patients. That group is striving for improved care and addressing the issue through publications, research, and collaboration. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from 2022 ASHA Healthcare Summit Grand Rounds in COVID-19 Rehab. In collaboration with MGH Institute of Health Professions, this transformational conference aims to help speech-language pathologists in various healthcare settings maximize outcomes for their patients impacted by COVID-19. Register by May 13th for early bird savings. Learn more at on.asha.org summit22. Joining me is an audiologist representing the International Ototoxicity Management Group. Since 2019, this group, based out of the VA's National Center for Rehabilitative Auditory Research, has been focusing on ways to improve hearing care for those facing ototoxic effects. Gayla Poling is Director of Diagnostic Audiology Research at Mayo Clinic. She co-leads subgroups on aminoglycosides and cancer treatment as a part of the International Ototoxicity Management Group. Ototoxicity from medications, healthcare treatment, and sometimes occupational or environmental factors can lead to hearing loss, tinnitus, and balance issues. Audiologists are often aware of these risks. But I asked Gayla, are patients and people who may be facing occupational hazards also aware of ototoxic risks? My daily practice is filled with patients who have do know that these are risks, but knowing and experiencing are two very different things. So although it might get mentioned that there are potentials for hearing loss or tinnitus or balance difficulties as a result of medications or treatments, it can be a very different thing to experience. And especially when I feel better and I go back to work um, and I'm exposed to things at work as well. A lot of times these are medications that are very necessary. Correct. They're usually life-preserving, life-saving. They're not really optional medications. Usually these are really complex diseases and disorders, and an entire care team is managing this patient. So having the opportunity for the patient to be informed and part of that decision-making about their care is really important to all of us. When I heard Gayla mention care teams, I thought of the interprofessional teams treating patients, and I asked Gayla about the roles and opportunities audiologists can play when addressing ototoxicity. There's a huge role for audiologists and really anybody in a communication specialties area. You sit on interprofessional teams as part of diagnoses. You sit there for management and rehabilitative options. And having a voice at the table that really can focus on hearing and hearing healthcare is really important. We see this from the time from diagnosis to monitoring throughout treatment to rehabilitation and treatment planning long term. So every aspect for being an advocate, for being somebody who can help diagnose those changes early on and intervene is really important. When we talk about autotoxicity management, are we talking about tracking and monitoring responses to drugs with autotoxic or potential autotoxic qualities? 
Exactly. When we're talking about ototoxicity management, we're really talking about the entire process from diagnosis to monitoring to rehab to intervention, really everything that might be involved for that ototoxic exposure and the downstream effects. So it could also be focused on prevention. If you're at risk for increased hearing loss associated with ototoxicity and you work around a lot of noise, for example, knowing those things in advance and being able to intervene through education or additional hearing protection is really helpful and can actually prevent some of the side effects. That's where an audiologist may be able to be a part of these interprofessional teams or work interprofessionally. Exactly. It's also really important when we think about informed decision-making in healthcare in general. Oftentimes, patients are at their worst, so to speak, in terms of feeling and being able to communicate effectively when they're not feeling well and they're going through treatment. So to be there for the care team and the providers and help them know how best to communicate and really help promote good communication when hearing loss maybe is present or tinnitus is present, that can be also an important role for an audiologist and a care team provider. Could you tell me what brought this group together? What brought you together? The International Toxicity Management Group came together as really a global consortium of individuals and professionals that were already working in these areas. Um, many of us had crossed paths at conferences and through just collaborations and literature that was coming up. And we all are very passionate about this topic of prevention of ototoxicity. And this group came together as part of a, a special conference at the NCRER, um, the National Center for Rehabilitative Auditory Research at the VA in Portland. They had a special conference and the group came together and we sort of formalized what we had as a working group into this management group to represent this wide variety of experts and try to come up with some consensus around how we might improve ototoxicity management across the world. You said a wide variety of members. You have representation from healthcare providers, researchers, policymakers, patients, I understand, but also international. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about why you found it was important to take a look at this issue through an international lens? Yes, we had several partners um, nationally and internationally that focus in this area, but what we quickly learned is that there are different needs in different contexts, right? So healthcare systems, even within the United States, work very differently. And when you think about internationally, the workflow has a big impact on how we might not only detect ototoxicity, but how we might intervene to help with prevention. So that international perspective um, was really important to us and the additional perspective of the patient, which is something that we value really highly in the group, is really important for us as well. What did you learn from some of the other folks that are represented in the group? What are you learning about challenges and opportunities in other countries? Yeah, as part of this group, we have an international emphasis chair that focuses Really right now, the subgroups are focused in Africa, China, and Europe, but that's quickly expanding. And what we're learning across the globe is that there is a need or demand for detection of ototoxicity, just with the standardized information about risks associated with ototoxic exposures and ototoxic side effects. But also what we're learning is that there are different needs in different contexts. So where some some regions of the world have more specialized infections than others. So our colleagues in South Africa, for example, they have a robust work in the realm of aminoglycoside exposures. So 
with exposures related to these IV medications that can be used really effectively to help. However, they can be really toxic to the ears depending on how they're given and what doses. So it depends on the sort of the location, the, I guess, the exposure. And that's what we're learning is how to adapt our sort of consensus experience and guidelines to fill those gaps and needs across all boundaries. Is there anything that you found that would be particularly applicable or adaptable in the U.S. that you've heard from other countries? Oh, absolutely. We have several international colleagues that are really doing impressive things when it comes to public health and education and just how to engage with interprofessional teams. So we're learning as a group not only how to approach the same problem from different perspectives. Probably the best example we've learned is how we might survey more effectively and get on the same page in terms of the language that we're using to talk about ototoxic exposures, the language we're using to talk with the broader care teams about what are those experiences with hearing loss, tinnitus, and balance and vestibular issues, and just how we might understand how large of an impact ototoxicity really has on the patient and how large of an impact it really has on our different health care systems. It's really hard to argue prevention, but at the same time, we have to understand what that framework is and just how many people are impacted. What do you mean it's hard to argue prevention? What I mean by it's hard to argue prevention, it's hard to really quantify the enormous reach and impact of the ototoxic effects when it's part of the entire care experience. It's a complicated question to figure out what you attribute just to that ototoxicity versus the larger healthcare experience for the patient. So that's what's been so fascinating to me to learn from our international colleagues as well, is just looking at how we quantify the impact to the patient in the healthcare system. Interested in learning more about public health and audiology? Find links to a short list of ASHA Voices episodes on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. And look for a link to our episode from August 2021 about a vestibular implant. After taking medication, Andrea Elise Messer woke up with bilateral vestibular loss. Hear the full story that led Andrea to the vestibular implant. That's in the podcast archive and online at on.asha.org slash podcast. We're going to take a quick break. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the 2022 ASHA Healthcare Summit Grand Rounds in COVID-19 Rehab. Join other SLPs from various healthcare settings and interprofessional staff from MGH Institute at the Transformational Conference this June. You can attend the online conference only or the online conference and the in-person workshop, early bird rates end on May 13th. Learn more and register at on.asha.org summit 22. In the second half of our conversation, I asked Gayla to tell us about where ototoxicity shows up in her work at the Mayo Clinic. My clinical practice is at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I have the unique privilege to really focus in on ototoxicity, not only the detection, but focusing on the prevention, both from a clinical standpoint and a research standpoint. My patient population here really spans from the newborn settings, so newborns all the way into adulthood. So we see that ototoxicity really impacts a variety of ages. It comes up in a variety of different contexts. So I have a caseload that includes patients who are going through cancer treatments, who are going through 
really aggressive infectious disease workups where they are getting exposures to IV antibiotics like aminoglycosides. I have patients that have ongoing care for cystic fibrosis. So when they are exposed to aminoglycosides, typically when they have infections. So really the ototoxic exposures range the lifespan, they range the sort of the whole healthcare for an individual. And I think that's the thing that is most intriguing to me about how we might improve healthcare in this area is just that it usually is not just one ototoxic exposure that we're thinking about throughout the course of our lifetimes. It can be many. <laughs> Trying to understand how we can be there to support the detection of ototoxicity, but also the prevention across the lifespan is really helpful. You mentioned cystic fibrosis. We've been talking a lot about interprofessional collaboration. How might something like cystic fibrosis be a place to demonstrate interprofessional practice? This is one of the most exciting things that we've done with the International Toxicity Management Group. As a group, we came together to review clinical practices and clinical recommendations or considerations for patients with cystic fibrosis. And not only from a national, international perspective, but just how do we improve that interdisciplinary care that is so critical to patients that have cystic fibrosis. So this is a recent effort that um, was published from our group, but also something that we see every day in the clinical practice here at Mayo Clinic in terms of being able to be there from sort of start to finish for a patient's care so that we have baseline information for hearing. We have an understanding of what hearing is like before an ototoxic exposure so that if a patient does have an ototoxic exposure or if we know they're going to be at risk for ototoxic exposures, we can intervene and be there to support the hearing and communication needs for that patient. You just heard Gayla discuss an article on hearing care for patients with cystic fibrosis. Want to read the full article? Find the link on the blog post for this podcast at on.asha.org slash podcast. The VA and the Mayo Clinic are large healthcare institutions, but in our conversation, Gayla highlights the important role audiologists at private practices or in community-based settings play in supporting patients dealing with ototoxic effects. I think it's very important for every audiologist to recognize that they have a role to play in their patient's care. And a lot of those patients will have ototoxic exposures at some point in their life. When we talk about the ototoxic management today where a patient is going through treatment or medication exposures that really go on for several months to years, if you're the audiologist in the private practice, you still have a very important role to play. From my clinical practice, I have the perspective of a lot of the, the patients I see come to me you know, for their one-time check or their um, sort of their care team check, and then they go home back to their um, community and they live this every day of their life. So I have the opportunity to really work closely with local audiologists and see the struggles and see um, also the joy and the value added for what they can do in terms of advocacy and understanding and getting their patients um, supported in the right place in the right time. I think whether you're an audiologist in a private practice or all the way up to a, a major medical center, I think you have a strong role to play, just like every patient has a strong role to play for understanding and advocating for themselves as well. I think there's lots of opportunities here to be involved and be supportive. In some places I understand audiology can be siloed from 
other interprofessional practices. And do you have any advice for how an audiologist or how other healthcare professionals might work to get through some of those silos to, to work together? So some advice that I have to offer in terms of thinking about how we break down some of the silos or break those lines and to get more integrated with the larger care team are to start by what you're doing right now, learning more, right? Try to understand a little bit more about ototoxicity. Try to look at the resources that are there for our professional organizations and really understand what is the the question or the concern. And then the next step for that is try to understand who are those care team members. So for me, it's been really important to meet the the referring provider, right? Understand who that referring provider is and what role they play. If you understand more about their approach and what the information that we can provide from the audiology standpoint, how that can help with their care team management and how that can help with that patient-centered care, that really helps you help yourself. Once you learn more about the process, especially if it's a new process for you to learn about, the once you know that, the more you have, more you can see how you have, what you have to offer. So learn more, ask questions, and be approachable, accessible for those questions whenever they come. So if you're not met with a lot of eager excitement in your first conversation, that's okay. Everyone's busy, but everyone cares about their patients. Just be there and try to keep learning more. Earlier in this episode, we discussed some of the difficult decisions that have to be made regarding ototoxic drugs. I wanted to know more, and I asked Gayla to tell me about that decision-making process and what kind of conversations she would have with a patient facing the potential for ototoxic exposure. As an audiologist, uh, we have a lot of conversations with our patients about potential ototoxic exposures. Most of them focus around treatment or medication exposures and Often a topic that aligns is noise-induced hearing loss or noise exposures. When we're talking about ototoxicity related to treatments or medications, I'm in the position as an audiologist to really talk about the impacts to the, you know, on hearing loss, tinnitus, um, balance and vestibular, and what that means for quality of life, what that means for um, their families, not only for themselves, and the conversations that happen about the medications and the treatment approaches really happen from the managing physician. What's exciting about the perspective of the audiologist is I can help speak as the expert in the hearing domain, right? So I can help provide that context and impact not only to the patient, but to the care team to help fill in that gap, so to speak. And then those treatment discussions really happen with the physician and the larger care team with the patient. And what's nice is to be able to provide that patient the opportunity to make those informed decisions. And that's what's something um, we're all advocating for. At the end of our conversation, I asked Gayla if there was anything else on the horizon for the International Ototoxicity Management Group that she wanted to mention. For the International Toxicity Management Group, I just would encourage everyone to learn a little bit more. It's uh, a growing group that really spans a variety of not only professionals, but also a variety of perspectives. So I think there's lots to be learned, lots to be integrated into our everyday clinical practice. When I think about ototoxicity in particular, we have a lot that we can do today to not only educate and assess and intervene to support patients and their families throughout treatments, 
And what we are very excited about is what's to come. So there's a lot of active research out there in terms of um, interventions that might prevent ototoxic medications and treatments. And we're really excited where some of that research might go and, and be prepared for further supporting our patients. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Gila Poling is Director of Diagnostic Audiology Research at Mayo Clinic. She co-leads subgroups on aminoglycosides and cancer treatment as a part of the International Ototoxicity Management Group. Learn more about the International Ototoxicity Management Group. Find information on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the 2022 ASHA Healthcare Summit, Grand Rounds in COVID-19 Rehab. Join us at the Transformational Conference this June to learn how to assess and treat patients impacted by COVID-19. You'll walk away with valuable resources, practical tools, new connections, and innovative ideas for maximizing the SLP's role in COVID-19 management. Register by May 13th for early bird savings. Learn more at on.asha.org summit 22. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.